This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth there. I'm the host of the podcast. And today I'm here with Amanda Finger and Annie Miller of the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking. And we're going to talk about their recently released Colorado Project 2, or as the official name is, Colorado Project 2 to Comprehensively Combat Human Trafficking. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks, Seth. So, uh, Amanda and Annie, what are your roles with the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking? I'm currently the executive director, and I'm a co-founder of LCHT. I'm Annie, and I am currently a board member, um, and I was one of the co-principal investigators for Colorado Project 2.0, and we'll probably use the abbreviation CP 2.0 for the rest of the podcast. That does take less syllables. It does. Mm -hmm. It will save us all time. (laughs) So I've known Amanda and Annie for multiple years, uh, both from LCHT and from the University of Denver, respectively, and... uh, Yeah, it'll be good to have a conversation. So to uh, start with, what is the Colorado Project? Well, this is Amanda. I'll jump in with the original idea um, because we started this work back in 2010 with respect to uh, working with a lot of different folks, researchers, practitioners, survivors, uh, funders. It was a very collaborative group. And we had been working with the Embry Family Foundation for a little while to uh, design a project that would center around the question of what would it take to end human trafficking in Colorado. And that Family Foundation had really seen a lot of the collaboration occurring within and throughout Colorado and really felt that this was a great state to kind of tackle that question. And the way that we really think about uh, our approach to the issue of trafficking is is in part from a an interdisciplinary perspective. And we really wanted to have a lot of different voices at the table trying to figure out how do you even begin to answer that question of what would it take to end trafficking in our state? And so that was sort of the initial concept, um, what kind of kicked this, um, kicked this off. And we had, I think, 40 core project team members. We had a national advisory board that was made up of researchers and practitioners. And then we had a similar state advisory board that was mostly practitioners and folks who were working in similar parallel social movements like domestic violence, sexual assault, homelessness, uh, refugee asylee work, etc. And so we really worked with a lot of those stakeholders to um, start to design a project that would um, help us to really measure what this, um, what, you know, what our state looks like in terms of strengths and gaps and how we can compare that at a national level. And so that's sort of the idea, and Annie, you can go into some of the nuts and bolts of that, but I think the idea is that we don't have one central guiding national plan. We don't have what a lot of other countries do, which are national action plans. And from our perspective here in the state, 
we really wanted something to look to for promising practices, for best practices. What do we know? We should, you know, what do we know is comprehensive? What, how are we doing toward a comprehensive response? And so those are some of the, I think, early days, the brainstorming and what went into devising a project that, that is now quite, quite robust. Yeah, and I, having studied international development, I've seen all the verbiage given toward being participatory and doing participatory research and getting the input of stakeholders and having it be meaningful, but that sometimes is just empty words and it can be hard to actually do that. And so that's part of what looks great about what you were, what you attempted here is trying to actually get to the community level and listen to a diverse uh, set of groups and people. So what, what I've gleaned from glancing through the, the report, which is on uh, the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking's website, is uh, that you visited 20 uh, unique communities in Colorado, that there were 183 individual surveys, there were 69 organizational interviews, and 29 focus groups. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, so, how did you um, how did you find the the individuals and groups, and how did you approach them? Um, so, I think the the strength of our community based participatory action research methodology that we utilize mm-hmm. is really that we've been working in these communities for quite a while now. You know, Amanda talked about this project starting back in 2012, but even before that, our co-founders, Amanda and AJ, were really involved in this movement and particularly in Colorado. Um, So our value, like a a central value of the organization has always been about working with and in community um, instead of on behalf of or for the community, which is really in line with the way our methodology has been structured over time around the Colorado Project. So our goal is always to hold lived experience as um, one key factor or indicator or, you know, group that we work with to be able to understand how to ask questions, how to do this research and how to make it applicable on the ground so that survivors feel supported by efforts across the state um, and practitioners have the tools to effectively apply trauma-informed care or other kinds of promising practices um, that we think will help end human trafficking ultimately. Um, so yeah, you mentioned our, our response, (laughs) um, to this effort. And really this is because of those longstanding relationships that we're able to get back, uh, 183 surveys and, and conduct almost 70 organizational interviews. And what we did in Colorado project two, that looks a little different from Colorado project one is the, the organizational level interviews. When we came out of analyzing some of the data from CP1, we recognized that we have some really rich focus group data. And then we had some individual surveys that were either perceptions of individuals working in the movement or essentially completed on behalf of organizations. So an executive director likely completed the survey in CP1 and and said something about how their organization fits across the four Ps. We do utilize that four P framework from the State Department. The four Ps being prevention, protection, prosecution, and partnership? Yep, yep. So we identified the different communities. We um, essentially broke the state into 
to segments and said, okay, we think these regions are, are similar enough that we'd like to think about sampling out of these communities. Um, and, and we did that to be able to honor not only the communities that were involved in the original project, we call those our oversample communities so that we have a longitudinal picture of the communities we were in from the beginning. But then um, you can imagine that in our state that the more urban communities have had more partnerships, um, more funding, more support and more resources for their anti-trafficking efforts. So there's a lot more task forces and partnerships to interview there. So that's also why we have that large number of focus groups that might be coming from similar cities, um, that 20 communities versus 29 focus groups. So really the relationships are the reason that we're able to have the kind of response that we have um, and get the kind of information that, that we did get. So I don't know, Amanda, if you want to jump in. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I think the only thing that I would add is um, since we did our first round of data collection, which Annie mentioned was 2012 for the state of Colorado, we started with strategic planning in 2010, we surveyed nationally in 2011, and then we conducted research in 2012 within Colorado. But we had a lot of changes in our state that occurred since 2012, including a new updated human trafficking law that established the governor's Colorado Human Trafficking Council. And as part of the council's work, they surveyed both law enforcement and prosecutors. And so for this round, for CP 2.0, we did not uh, seek out additional interviews with law enforcement and prosecutors. Many of them were part of, of existing uh, task forces where we conducted focus group interviews. But as far as the survey, we collaborated with the council so that the council used some of our original survey questions. So I think from a community-based research perspective, those were a few, a few challenges that I definitely see other states having. And it was one of our major challenges for uh, back in 2012 was really getting that additional buy-in from those stakeholder groups that would fall under the prosecution P. Otherwise, we really tried to identify um, all of those groups that we knew about that were doing anti-human trafficking work or responding for uh, service provision, for example, um, and then a lot of parallel groups that um, were working on related issues where they might come into contact with uh, victims and survivors of human trafficking. And so we had some pretty extensive lists that we generated throughout the state, and then working closely with a lot of collaborators to share the surveys and really promote this as something helpful for our community. Those were some of, I think, the, the ways in which we went about that, Seth. And then Amanda, I'll just jump in to say that um, the way that we tend to describe the parallel piece is that we also attempt to be inclusive of root causes to trafficking. And so when we include individuals um, in our survey, we want to include movements where they might touch those root causes. So we have a clear understanding of how trafficking happens in Colorado, um, which will help inform that question of how would we end it. So whenever we kind of throw out that parallel movement or parallel partners, that tends to be what we're describing in, in our methodology or in our research that 
we want to be sure that that the focus is also on root causes to trafficking so communities feel like empowered to be able to do something about ending trafficking and in terms of organizations aside from law enforcement you mentioned service providers so so what are some of the specific groups that you talk to you i mean the group types would be fine yeah we um talk to um, victims assistance agencies um, sexual assault centers we talk to organizations that um, work to maybe organize you could say um, labor movements um, we talk to uh, child protection services um, not specifically at any level that I would describe to name or identify our participants but um, in Colorado particularly in the last couple years um, a lot of the efforts have come around training individuals who work in child protective services to recognize trafficking and, and they've created a screening tool and and been really instrumental in advancing awareness around trafficking so um, it's it's not surprising to learn that that they're very involved in this movement um, but I'm also careful trying <laughs> mm -hmm. to be sure that we respect confidentiality and, and anonymity of our, of our partners that participated. I'd say some of the other groups were uh, survivors. We spoke with direct service providers that provide social services and legal services. Um, and that can, that can range. Um, that's, that's a broad range, right? So groups that are um, really supporting case management efforts of, you know, around this population, other populations, um, shelters, uh, different groups that would fall under the protection P or even the prevention P with, uh, with trainings that they do or different presentations in the communities or direct outreach that they do. Uh, so those are probably some other stakeholder groups too. Okay, and when you do an organizational interview, like, how does that look? Like, uh, do you do interviews of multiple people? Like, what what is the mechanics of the interviews look like? Um, the organizational interview protocol uh, was really about us interviewing either one, two, or three individuals from an organization um, that we identified in a community that specifically was involved in anti-trafficking efforts mm -hmm. um, and so we sat down with them sometimes the two representatives from the organization came together sometimes we would interview them separately um, and a lot of what we asked about were questions across all of the four p's so data collected from those interviews are not just um, in the partnership p or in the prevention p but um, also about referral networks. So that was one thing we were curious about in organizational interviews. Did they feel like there was enough support in their community to re refer survivors? Um, what kind of resources would they want to see? What were other kinds of limitations? What were innovative community solutions? How did they overcome challenges? Um, so we, we really tried in those interviews to get a sense of what happens maybe not necessarily at the larger community level, but really what happens across various organizations who might be involved in a partnership. And then the focus group protocol is mostly at the partnership level. So when we would interview at, as a focus group, it was typically a partnership that had formed in that community um, that was 
working in the anti-trafficking space. So the organizations that participate in the organizational interviews were often members of that partnership. Okay. So the report says that uh, participants described two primary challenges in, in response to human trafficking in Colorado, one being knowledge and awareness possessed locally, and two being economic drivers that create demand. And Colorado, like many states, has the urban and rural areas and urban and rural perspectives and so on. And so uh, what did you learn from some of the rural areas relating to uh, human trafficking in Colorado? So, yeah, we utilized um, language from the Colorado Rural Health Center when we thought about understanding rural frontier and urban community breakdowns. One of the latest publications that we've put out as a result of um, our data collection process for CP 2.0 was that we did the report and we did the action plan and released those earlier this year. But over the summer, we released something that we're calling our community profiles. And those are exciting because they actually identify specific root causes in each region. Um, so you can go and look at in a more rural region, like you could think of southeastern Colorado, and, um, and look what might be the economic drivers in those communities, what might be the specific vulnerabilities, what did respondents in that region describe when they think about resources so either prevention or protection resources. And I think those are actually a really phenomenal resource. And, and we're just now getting those back in the hands of those communities to say, hey, here, here's what we found that's very specific to your location. Um, and we think that's also part of upholding our community-based participatory action research methodology is, is to be back with those communities. So some key findings in, in rural areas, which might be unsurprising for many listeners, is, is some of that lack of resources and then specific knowledge and training about root causes of trafficking um, and how trafficking might show red flags or signs, like how might you identify trafficking in your local community. Um, so those are things that we think about and, and, you know, in, in some rural communities and not in others, they talked about the process of the judicial system and what that might look like there in terms of training and awareness, whereas others felt really confident that their local law enforcement agencies are aware of this issue and working on it. So I think we also saw a lot of variation, um, across those specific places and, and that hopefully comes out to readers in those community profiles. So in terms of research, and this is something that I learned when I started looking into trafficking, is because certain groups do awareness and because we hear about human trafficking, we have this idea that there's all this research and that there's lots of money going toward it and all of that, and there's not. There's not a lot of research. There's not a lot of money going toward it compared to some other things. And so uh, one of the things that's always impressed me about the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking is research has always been part of what you do. I guess just want to hear a bit about um, the importance of research, like uh, your perspective on research and human trafficking. That's a great question. You know, I think when we when – we started thinking about 
what kind of agency, what kind of nonprofit we wanted to be in the field. We had all of these, all of these questions in the early days of the anti-trafficking movement. And my co-founder, Dr. A.J. Alejandro Steele from Metropolitan State University of Denver, she and I were at the time uh, helping to coordinate the Colorado office for Polaris Project. And we kept asking these questions that were measurement questions and really wanted to understand, for instance, for direct services, how long were people seeking resources? Did people identify as as victims and survivors coming into their program? How long did it take for an individual to, to make that self-determination compared to the shelter worker, the case manager? Um, what does that mean for this field? And are we asking bigger questions or the right questions? And we really wanted to add these these research questions to the work that we were doing and the programs that we were implementing. And that's what led us to uh, co-found the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking. And so we stepped away from Polaris to be able to add this important research component because at that time in 2010, there really had only been coordinated efforts around human trafficking, sort of the idea of a movement, if you will, that really began in 2005 because of the federal funding that went to support those partnership efforts in some of the early days of this law. And because of uh, AJ's training, her PhD background, and, and this just pursuit of, you know, ways in which our communities can can better use data rather than just sort of carving our way through this issue. We, we know a lot from similar issues. We've learned a lot from uh, the work of, you know, advocates addressing child abuse. We've learned a lot from the domestic violence and sexual assault movements. We've learned a lot from the refugee asylee um, efforts we've learned a lot from homelessness and poverty work. So why is it that we feel like we're starting from scratch when it comes to the issue of human trafficking? Because there are so many overlaps, exploitation overlaps with all of those examples I just gave. But if this, you know, if there's this federal mandate and there's this, you know, these new statutes that our communities are working to integrate into the criminal justice system into the grassroots efforts, then we should have some better data to build from. And so with our, you know, with our view of, of what was happening at the time in the movement, just watching these groups that were um, often reactive to what the federal government was putting out in terms of funding opportunities and, um, I can't discount the role of Hollywood as well, or, you know, what people were seeing on the TV, it, it sort of shaped a movement and that was all external. That wasn't coming from those grassroots community organizers or those communities sitting in town hall meetings saying, Hey, this is happening in our communities. We really need to do something about it. Um, it was, it was a lot of it 
just felt top down and external, like I said. And, and I think that, you know, research, what research can advance is, is how we see all of these issues relating to each other. How do we see poverty and like Annie described as the root causes, how do we see poverty and interpersonal violence and, and exploitation intersecting? What do we, what do we need to know as we move forward? Because I think as, you know, communities are thinking about laws or we're thinking about our social fabrics, we've got to be able to stand on some data and we've got to be able to understand personal stories and how can we do a better job of that. And so I think that is some of the the early thinking and some of the DNA that we infuse throughout our work at LCHT and that value of research. Based on what I've seen with the movement the money seem and the money in the uh, I guess mind space tends to be focused on prosecution and awareness, which pr- falls under prevention, and not so much under protection, both before and after and partnership. Is is that something that you you see, or do you think something different than I do? I think there's been a lot around awareness, but it's often. Um it's often coupled with other with other grants and so you'll have you'll have these you know partnership efforts that will fund enhanced collaborative model task forces now that we call them um, and so you'll see prevention as a as a component of that grant or there I think are some um, specific efforts around social and legal services and supporting individuals and that has been around since um since the law was passed in in the US but what we're seeing what we've seen over you know these 20ish almost years is that initially the funds really went to support individuals who were foreign national victims of trafficking and it began to shift and support uh, groups that were also identifying as domestic U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents in being able to support social and legal services for them. Now what we're seeing is um, some of the funding fall away under this current administration for foreign nationals. And so we're watching the ebbs and flows of you know a stronger focus on funding for prosecution with reduced funding for particularly foreign nationals under protection. And I realize there's relationship between federal funds and what happens in the state, but uh, in terms of uh, services for victims and survivors in Colorado, uh, what, what's the state of things right now? I think the state needs more recommendations about how to fill some of those those gaps and needs in funding. So the council has made a few recommendations. There have also been more federal laws that have required states to implement portions like our child welfare division has been working the past several years to um, to be able to report sex trafficking as a form of child abuse and that sex trafficking of children officially falls under our child abuse statutes. And some of that comes with funding. So there are a few efforts at the state, but we, like many other states, don't have a lot of dedicated or actually very, very few dedicated funding streams to respond to this crime. And I think the thing that um, the research that we did in CP 2.0 found in that same vein was the real need for survivors informing 
um, mm -hmm. the ways in which the funding that's generated would likely be spent that for much of this work and, and for a length of time in the movement, there hasn't been enough survivor voice or, or voices of individuals with lived experience helping support uh, communities to make decisions about what resources and what types of funds or what types of um, supports might be most helpful. And so I think that's one of the things that, that emerged as a need across the state as well as a promising practice in some locations um, that, that really survivor voice should be held up in communities to, to drive the conversation around how we use scarce resources. Right. And with scarce resources, it's nice to have research so you can target those scarce resources. Well said. So I had mentioned economic drivers as one of the challenges that you found from people. And uh, what are some of the economic drivers or factors relating to economic drivers that you found for Colorado? One economic driver that you can imagine is fairly strong in, in most Colorado locations is uh, a significant lack of affordable housing. Um, we heard that in communities across the state that in some communities they noted that there isn't a stable shelter that um, in other communities they might have said, yeah, we, we have beds, but we don't have safe beds or we don't have beds for um, survivors who identify as male or survivors who might have family members or emotional support animals. Like you can think of lots of needs that are not being met in Colorado around housing. Uh, so we view housing instability as a pretty significant economic driver of trafficking. And, and again, um, lots of communities and, and lots of individuals interviewed noted that, that the lack of support for long-term housing um, across the state is a real need. So that's one thing that we notice a specific root cause. Um, and then the other kinds of economic drivers have tended to be more community specific. Um, those have been in the region or place-based. Um, so our farming communities have different kinds of economic vulnerabilities compared to our more urban communities. So those are some things that come out of those community profiles. And I believe you've had some interest from other, from people in other states who want to do research in their state. But what would uh, be some tips and advice you'd give to people who want to do their own research projects? We got those for days. I mean, I don't know if you want to start, but I could, we have a very long running list of things that we've learned that we will apply for the next iteration of Colorado Project. But um, we've also learned a lot by doing a replication in Connecticut. And so I know Amanda can speak to that more fully than I can. Yeah, I think that um, I, I think that for us, the uh, ways in which communities look matters. And so you know, I think first and foremost, you've got to get both researchers and uh, practitioners into the same room. And, you know, you you need the researchers who really value those uh, community and participant perspectives and would involve them in all parts of the process. And you need communities that 
value research and the addition of of uh, those perspectives to the field. And so I think being able to find common ground where you've got that nice that nice team uh, that can that can really translate back and forth between different sectors and uh, research and practice, I think I think that's really valuable because, you know, you can't, if you just had researchers coming in from an ivory tower perspective to collect data, it's never going to really gain a lot of traction on the ground. If you don't have that buy-in from the folks working on the ground, or as you hear in the trenches, that kind of perspective, then, then how are those agencies or those organizers really going to be able to use the data most effectively? Um, and then vice versa, you know, researchers are going to miss a lot of data if they don't have some of those relationships with the community. And I think that because of of the still new newness of the issue of human trafficking, this model, this researcher practitioner community based research model, is why we're getting the the really rich data that we are, and why it is helpful for not just community organizers and um, practitioners providing services, but it's helpful to decision makers too, because now you've got these really great perspectives from communities and how they completely vary across the state um, that are telling you what's needed and telling you what those challenges are. So in Connecticut, um, they've been working just about a year to uh, really work throughout their state to conduct focus groups in the same survey. And so uh, they've had a really great response rate, but they're still in the process of of uh, finishing out their data collection right now. Yeah, that translation from the report, the raw data into an action plan, I think is the nexus of what makes this type of work and, and what we've done in the original Colorado project and, and CP 2.0 so powerful is the idea that we as researchers can collect valid and reliable data. We can do an IRB approved methodology. We can follow all of the, the science paradigms of high quality research. But then because we've had community partners and survivor leaders involved through the whole process, our product becomes something actionable, the, the action plan as, as we describe it. Um, and I think that makes that translation of research useful on the ground. When when we talk to communities now, this in this action plan, 2.0, we learned a valuable lesson from one. In one, we had way too many community recommendations. And it was hard for communities to prioritize which of all of those recommendations they could apply more quickly, which was more relevant, which was more urgent. And in this action plan, we held to 10 recommendations across the four Ps. And I think that's um, solidified and coalesced some of the local movement um, because we had representatives from each of those P's in the conversation with the raw data saying, okay, this is what this translates to on the ground. Um, so when we get like, for example, the recommendation and partnership to have more diverse partnerships that include like, for example, a chamber of commerce, a labor interest, um, real diverse community perspectives from different grassroots communities um, that these these partnerships need to look like individuals might experience trafficking. Um, that's a real genuine, incredible recommendation for partnerships across the state. So 
I, I think that's the piece, as Amanda describes it, I, I would want to reinforce of, of what we've learned by doing this now longitudinally and, and moving forward. Um, the other thing I'll note from a researcher perspective, one of the big things I learned through this effort was also ensuring that you have enough resources as an organization or as a research team to conduct the research thoroughly. Um, we relied on lots and lots of partners. We relied on interns. We relied on training board members um, through a research approved protocol. We call it the city protocol. We had everyone who worked on collecting data with us get city certified. So I think there were lots of steps to ensuring that we had highly trained researchers um, but who were community partners. So that training piece and that implementation of this kind of research takes time and resources. And that was also a big learning curve for us as an organization. Any other things that you've learned or, or you wanted to pass on about the Colorado Project, either of you? Yeah, the thing I would want to mention as like a key takeaway or key like final comment is just our overarching umbrella finding from CP 2.0, if I had to just like microphone, that would be the need for ongoing evaluation of efforts around anti-trafficking work. Um, when we look at the types of data collected by communities and the kinds of data that we might have access to, this is of course, because I often wear a researcher hat. Um, the thing I think about a lot is how do we know when we're doing something that actually prevents or mm -hmm. actually protects or um, meet some kind of standard of one of the P's. And so um, I think this research that we're doing with the Colorado Project is getting us there, but I think there's still a lot of room for measurement and evaluation efforts in the movement to suggest uh, a drive toward promising practices, which might eventually lead to evidence-based practices. So. I really see us working in a direction of um, starting to develop opportunities to work with partners to understand the effectiveness of programs uh, and how interventions might work. I think too often we've created a, a causal mechanism of ending trafficking that's about deterrence. Um, and I'm not sure that in a lot of the criminal justice literature that that's been proven effective. Um, I think you could debate with a lot of CJ scholars, which I am, I'm not a CJ scholar. I'm, I'm very rooted in public administration and public affairs and, and political science, but CJ scholars would likely tell you that the deterrence theory probably isn't going to solve or end trafficking. <laughs> um, and, and, and some of that might be debatable. Could we decrease it potentially? And so I think the, the work around evaluation and measurement is, is really key at this point in the movement to understand how we we start making a difference. Um, and I, I think a lot of our communities are making a difference and we can feel it and it's tangible. But when they're asked for some kind of data point to say prove it by a funder or by another partner, um, that's a, a bigger hurdle than it needs to be because there are a lot of programs that are very effective across the state. So. So that would be the piece I would call out of, of, of the major finding of CP 2.0 is just we're at a really exciting point for collecting data, which probably sounds also very nerdy to your <laughs> listeners. Um, I'm like so excited about data. Um, but I really think that's the leverage on ending trafficking. And I think that's why this longitudinal work that LCHT has been doing is so powerful. 
um, because it is driving a data set where we can say these are things that have worked over time and these are things that places have tried that haven't been as successful and here's how we think we can identify what wasn't what didn't quite work or what wasn't a leverage point or why that awareness program wasn't helpful in identifying trafficking survivors so um that's a really long-winded way to say i'm excited about evaluation and measurement moving forward it's super cool work <laughs> i think that colorado project you know having just the amount of focus groups and interviews that we were able to line up was was really such an honor and privilege to just be sitting with just be sitting with folks who are are making a difference truly making a difference um, or who are, you know, just having a space to express their challenges. And so much of the work that we've done with uh, so many collaborators on Colorado Project 2.0 has been about celebrating and honoring all of those different efforts. And so, you know, taking time and sitting down with people and having these face-to-face -face conversations or phone conversations um, in a world that's increasingly digital or social uh, via the internet, it's it, it goes a long way when you sit and talk with people and when you sit and understand that some of these challenges are very similar and some of them are really unique to communities. I think taking that, that precious time and deliberate time to capture those voices is, is really important for not just this movement, but so much of the work that we're trying to, I think, address in our communities. In general, I've heard people, especially in rural areas, aren't always asked either, and that it's nice to have somebody value their opinion and and uh, hear their perspective, as yeah. well as learn from them. And having, you know, having Annie come from a rural area and some of those key rural perspectives, my childhood was from a rural area as well. You know, we really thought about some of those ways in which our state was represented um, even on our project team. Now, before I let you go, I do want to give a nod to the Colorado Human Trafficking Hotline, which I have mentioned before, along with Polaris's national hotline. But uh, Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking runs the Colorado Human Trafficking Hotline. And you took that over how long ago, Amanda? Uh, we were asked to take it on in 2013. And that number is 866-455-5075 for those in Colorado. And you now have a texting line as well? We have a, a way to reach our same resources that are in the hotline. We now have that capability through text. And I have that number, which is 720-999-9724. <laughs> I once called the Colorado Human Trafficking Hotline, so if you uh, wonder whether some situation might be trafficking, I suggest giving the number a call, and they'll figure out what to do with it. Amanda and Annie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us, Seth. It was great to talk about research and get a little nerdy. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for putting up with my nerddom. <laughs> sure. Uh, their website will be in the show notes, but it is combathumantrafficking.org. And on there, you can find the Colorado Project 2.0 as well as the related action plan. And I suggest you look at those. And if anyone has an 
questions about it, can they contact you, Amanda? Yeah, absolutely. My email address is amanda at combathumantrafficking.org. be great to follow up. All right. Sounds great. And for all you listeners, thanks for listening. Well, until next time. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.